The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, we're back. This is The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. How you doing, Paul? I'm great, Matt. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm trying to keep it tight for you, Paul, because it's late. And uh, like always, we have to eventually uh, get to bed after after recording. But we had a great show tonight on inpatient COVID with Dr. Nathan Erdman, who we'll tell you a bit more about in a second. And Paul, before we get to our guest and our guest host, can you please remind people what is it that we do on The Curbsiders? Happy to, as always, Matt. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. I would be remiss if I didn't mention our co-host. We are joined by hospitalist extraordinaire, Dr. Moni Amin, um, who, who produced this episode and joined us for the episode. So, Moni, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. <laughs> I am glad. I Why don't um, I let you tell us a little bit about who we talked to and what we talked about? Yeah, we had a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Nathan Erdman, who's an assistant professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham in infectious disease. He works as an inpatient consultant with a focus on immunocompromised hosts and has an outpatient HIV clinic panel. He's also a physician scientist with a focus on viral immunology. He has been heavily involved in COVID management, therapeutic clinical trials and translational research. And when he's not in the hospital, his time is spent with his family, where he has two boys in grade school, and his spouse, who is faculty in chemistry, also at UAB. So tonight, uh, Nathan tells us that we need to keep clinical context in mind over trending labs, and also, more importantly, the two arms of thinking about how to manage COVID, which include antiviral and then immunomodulation. So without further ado, let's get to it. And as the American New Wave band Berlin did in 1986, this episode is about to take your breath away. <laughs> who, Moni, who is that for? I mean, other than you, obviously. <laughs> I didn't read that ahead of time. And, uh, <laughs> oh, gosh. So I had thought of it and I, uh, I was like, I'm actually very bad at puns. And so I was going to have to find like a backwards way into a pun. And of course, you know. Yeah. Really bringing your A game tonight, Moni. Uh, yeah. Really, really Excellent. great. Top Gun soundtrack referencing. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. We did want to mention that our guest had a few disclosures. He has served as a contributor and speaker for Plantform Core and for Bristol Myers Squibb. However, no trade names were used on this episode when possible, and a balanced range of therapeutic options was included in the discussion. Nathan, we've been talking for a while now, and I want to get the audience in on this. Please give them a one-liner about yourself and a hobby or interest that you have outside of medicine. Well, I think it's adorable you think I have a hobby outside of medicine because <laughs> I have medicine and I have an eight and a 10-year-old um, that are both in competitive Little League. So that is really my existence right now. Little League World Series? Like, they've, have you guys been to, uh, what is it, Williamsport? Uh, we will see if we climb those heights. Right now, it is the over-the-hill uh, baseball park with a, some regional travel mixed in, and that is quite sufficient. 
All right. Well, exciting stuff. It's the, the kids at that age, they start to, they, they're, some of the athletes are pretty impressive. So it's, it can be fun. It's very entertaining. It sometimes is more serious than it needs to be, but we try to limit that as best we can. Um, you know, and when it's not baseball, it's karate. When it's not karate, it's soccer. And when it's not soccer, it's chess club. And it just goes on and on and on. <laughs> All right, Paul. I'll, I'll... Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, huh. this feels like a dead end because my usual question is sort of, um, I'll, I will keep it broad, any piece of culture or art that you've enjoyed recently in between uh, Little League games and chess club and that when you occasionally do some medicine stuff? Um. I don't do it as much as I'd like. Right now, we're running through Peaky Blinders on Netflix, which so we're oh, kind sure. of run through that. Um, that's a new discovery for us, but um, that will be on in the background. And we're kind of waiting for opening day. We are a baseball family now, and so um, that'll be the background noise to when I'm writing or reading or signing notes in the evenings here coming up soon. Right. Still counts. <laughs> uh, Nathan, I was just kind of curious. You know, we've with all the training and stuff you've done, what's kind of the best advice along that trail that you've come across in your time? Hmm. Well, there's a lot of layers to that onion. <laughs> um, I think early on, especially for those on the kind of academic track or looking for leadership opportunities, it's being very thoughtful, but trying to default towards saying yes, but then very quickly thereafter, you have to kind of look out for yourself and be very thoughtful and rely on mentors and others to help give us some guides, but not being afraid to say no. So you can actually do the things that you want to do. Well, um, there is no perfect, uh, too hot, too cold kind of happy medium there, but it's important to keep both those aspects in mind. I feel like I have heard that from so many people and I still have not learned that lesson. Well, <laughs> I, Amy Oxentenko gave us what I thought was really helpful advice for that initial reflex, yes. She said she never says yes right away, and then she'll say, I'm going to sleep on it, and then I'll get back to you because that will at least decrease the number of times you say that, you say yes to something, and then like you regret it, and you're just like almost like have a grudge against the person that got you to say yes to it. <laughs> <laughs> Paul knows what I'm talking about. I know yeah, Paul I does. Do. <laughs> yeah, we, we run a... We run an academic program that I uh, co-lead, um, and that's kind of frequent advice. It's that make sure you emphasize how thrilling of an opportunity it is, but don't commit. And then if it is a no, find that person in your corner to say no for you um, so that you don't kind of have to have to deal with that. So that's what a good mentor is for, is to step in on your behalf and, yeah. and make that no. That makes everyone walk away happy. That's great advice. Well, we have a lot to talk about tonight, but I, I do want to get, Moni, when you're on the show, we got to get a pick of the week from you. It, it, it's okay if it's Kelly Clarkson, but, uh, you know, you've already recommended Kelly Clarkson, so I don't know if you want to put yourself into that corner. There is a wrinkle to this one. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I believe uh, one of the first ones we did together uh, off air, I think my friend mentioned that uh, I DJed in a past life. So... That entailed doing some weddings that got awkward very quickly. And then uh, when I was, you know, in my, during my first job, I was in the city. I didn't know, didn't have any friends the first couple months. So I just started making mashups, which I know are frowned upon in most snooty music circles. Well, I hadn't made a mashup since the pandemic started. It is probably like the, you know, uh, right before the pandemic started, I made one. And then last two weeks ago, I decided I was going to make a mashup again. So this mashup is the follow has the following four songs. Okay. The drum beat to it's tricky by run DMC. 
the instrumental to Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> Greatest pop song of the last 10 years, hands down. Uh, the chorus occasionally to the middle by Zed and Marin Morris. And then the main vocal, obviously, since you've been gone by Kelly Clarkson. <laughs> Uh, and where can we hear this? Is this on the <laughs> Moni Got Money Amin uh, YouTube channel? Is that, uh, where, where can we find this? I actually think that YouTube had the crackdown on YouTube. I haven't tried to put this one up because a few of mine got uh, de- taken <laughs> off essentially. Uh, so I stopped doing that, but I am happy to send you all a direct link from my Google Drive with the file because yeah. it's been bringing me lots of joy. You yeah. 100% have to do that. Please yeah. post that on on the our internal curb, curbsider Slack. And, uh, 100% happy and to do that. And of course, well, you, you send Nathan a copy if he's interested as oh, well. No, I, I will have an 8- and 10-year-old dance-off to that. <laughs> it sounds like right up their alley, actually. <laughs> well, I'm glad I asked. That was a fun pick of the week. Um, Paul, what do you think? Do you want to give a quick pick of the week before, or should we go to a case? Well, we can go. I, I mean, I can't even top that. I was going to recommend The Batman because it was... Good and enjoyable, though flawed. Um, and that's enough to say, but I, I can't I can't top that mashup. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial, the national bank for doctors, by doctors. And as a doctor, I know that the average bank just isn't built for our community because they see our debt levels or limited credit history as red flags. But at Panacea, they're different because they were founded by two physicians and they're dedicated to providing solutions for the unique needs of doctors and doctors in training, like their PRN personal loan. Let's say you want to cover the cost of moving for residency or fellowship, or you're just trying to avoid credit cards. Well, their PRN personal loan has a period of no or low affordable payments, no cosigner requirement, low fixed interest rates, and it doesn't depend on your credit score. Panacea also has some other doctor-specific loans like student loan refinance or practice buy-in loans. And if none of this sounds like it's up your alley, then you can still refer a friend and get up to $250 for each referral. So join the growing number of doctors nationwide that expect more from their bank and have switched to Panacea Financial. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how a bank for doctors by doctors can help you. Panacea Financial is a division of Premise Member FDIC. Yeah, let's go to our first case from Cashlack. Ms. Patel, she's a 45-year-old lady who came in with a history of diabetes and hypertension and asthma. She had just returned from visiting her family in India. She's developed a cough and fever, fatigue, and over the course of a couple days, she's been using her inhalers really to no effect. And so she finally came in and notably received the first two doses of the mRNA vaccine, but hadn't had a chance to get a booster because she was in India when she was due for it. Notably, when she got here, she was febrile, uh, had a heart rate tachycardic and saturating 94% on room air. She's generally ill-appearing. Otherwise, her exam's notable for diffuse wheezes. Her lab's otherwise pretty uh, unremarkable. Uh, At this particular site of Cashlack, every patient with respiratory symptoms is still being tested for COVID, and she receives a positive uh, SARS-CoV-2 PCR test. So I think the elephant in the room to start is actually does this patient need to be admitted? Because I think, especially with the resource issues that we have across the board at all, at all our sites at Cashlack, uh, I think it's important to think about, is this the kind of patient we should admit? Is it an obstinate admission or not? Also, if she 
isn't admitted, are there good return precautions to give her? Yeah, it's very much a choose your own adventure based upon what phase of the given surge you're in and kind of how to kind of like your decision tree is going to be influenced by what's going around. Um, I mean, at different points over the last 18 months, you wouldn't even really need a COVID test to know that this person had COVID just Mm -hmm. given the scenario. Um, But really strictly reading it, there's no real indication here that there's an objective reason that they need hospitalization. Um, I have worked with my hospitalist many times and I've never seen a soft call that has led to admission, but maybe that happens elsewhere. Um, So, I mean, that's just, you know, if they felt that for whatever reason, this person was set up for challenges, then that's just kind of what we get to deal with. Um, So strictly speaking, there's not kind of acute interventions that are necessary, but there are some of the um, outpatient therapeutics, particularly the antibodies that are relevant to this scenario, uh, depending upon the timing and availability. Um, One of the other challenges that is not unique to COVID, but is particularly acute in COVID is that all of this is kind of a moving target um, as far as individual or specific therapies. But given someone who has risk factors and um, has a, what we would now consider a suboptimal vaccination because they're lacking a boost and antibody intervention is a reasonable consideration here. Um, the next question should be, well, which antibody? And that is pretty difficult to answer right now. The initial antibody products, the monoclonals um, that were particularly effective uh, going through Delta um, are, haven't been performing very well and have had uh, poor binding to Omicron and the Omicron variants. Um, and depending upon when you're hearing these, uh, this discussion, it's hard for me to say where exactly we'll, we will be. There are a couple active antibodies right now that are, uh, seem to be effective against the circulating Omicron variants that would be appropriate in this situation. Um, the other consideration would be turning this patient back out as an outpatient and using one of the oral antiviral options, um, because uh, those are actually showing quite good data. The last consideration is there is data out for remdesivir showing the pine tree study, which showed that a early course of the infusion is effective. The challenge there is giving that. Um, the How resource intensive everything has been and the challenges with remdesivir where it requires a once daily infusion make that really, really impractical in most situations, but it is effective. I, I haven't seen many of the, so fortunately recently, and uh, I'm sure by the time this airs, who knows what things will look like. I, I Early on, we were giving the monoclonal antibodies, and then when Omicron came around and the, the, there, was, there was very short supply of monoclonal antibodies that actually worked, and then now that we have the new oral antivirals, I don't know that I've seen one in the wild yet. Uh, I certainly haven't prescribed one. Nathan, is this being... Are they being used a lot for a patient like this? You you mentioned them. Again, it's moving target. When we got into the full uh, surge of Omicron, it was really difficult to find any antibody. Um, I'm at a very large hospital, one of the largest in the country, um, and we were getting allocations that were in the single digits for antibody usage for our whole health system. Um, And we were heavily diverting those to very, very at-risk immunosuppressed populations. Um, we actually had on speed dial a handful of pharmacies that were getting allocations of oral antivirals and were diverting patients there. That said, that, that is now fundamentally different, and we have at least um, two different antibody options that are available. And the antivirals are relatively easy to come by, at least in between um, post the kind of peak Omicron surge and whatever happens to come next. 
Um, so those are out there and available. Um, the other thing that's making a bit of a resurgence is convalescent plasma. It became a bit more feasible to acquire during Omicron because there were so few other options. Um, and there is data showing it works not unlike monoclonals um, as far as kind of early use. The challenge with convalescent plasma early on was that the the quality of and really like the binding potential um, of convalescent plasma early on wasn't uniform. Uh, but now that we're getting into more kind of uniform, high titer convalescent plasma, it has efficacy that's in the neighborhood of what the monoclonals are doing. And Nathan, so you're you're mentioning the monoclonal antibodies. There's so there's a couple of them. It's been a moving target because it seems like the efficacy changes with the variant. So I don't know that we need to give the names. And then there's two drugs which the generic names are pretty much unpronounceable. One of them is uh, much more uh, efficacious, but you got to watch out for all these drug drug interactions. As uh, Paul and I were talking before we came on, he tried to order it for somebody with a transplant, and it was very hard to figure out. And uh, and then the other one is less efficacious. Um, and uh, easier to say, I believe that's molnupiravir, but we're, you know, these these are still available and uh, people can think about using them. And, and you mentioned remdesivir, the infusion, if you can get it set up for people as well, but it's several days in a row. Yeah, I don't think the oral antivirals are going to have a place in the inpatient setting in the foreseeable future. There are some potential studies coming down that may look at combination therapy or alternative therapy head-to-head comparisons um, that could shift that paradigm further down the road. Um, But frankly, it's a little bit challenging to figure out how to uh, uh, organize and enroll those studies in the near term, just given what the current inpatient numbers are. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's, I feel like if I got a phone call about this patient, I would, she would, I would very nervously do close outpatient monitoring. I would fight the good fight for some of the newer medications. But this this patient seems sickish. She has some risk factors that might portend a worse prognosis. So you have the diabetes, you have um, underlying lung disease in, in the case of asthma. So while this person is, is captive in, in the ER, we actually have access to sort of more potential data. What What labs would help you stratify this patient further that might sort of push you towards being more or less aggressive? Is there any sort of initial testing in this particular setting that you find useful as to determine who who needs to come in, who who can be sent back home? So it's a good question, and there's not a uniform answer. I, I think really I would have a – I would really rely on my emergency department to kind of give a good feel like just how does this patient look? What is their support network? How confident are you that they're going to leave and come back if necessary? Um, how health literate are they? So you're going to be looking at kind of the the whole picture here and trying to get an overall assessment of their risk. Um, we have kind of in our health system established a panel of inflammatory markers that is less a kind of formal diagnostic criteria, but more of a uh, kind of cross-sectional snapshot of where we are, particularly for me as an infectious disease consultant, I find them very helpful to get a handle on where things are if I come in in a couple, three days and can get a repeat check and get a better handle on what the trajectory is. So depending upon what testing platform uh, we're using, sometimes we can get a cycle threshold on the PCR, which is particularly relevant to our immunosuppressed population. Uh, I like seeing a CRP and a um, ferritin. That helps kind of inform, again, maybe where we are in the near term, but definitely what trajectory we're on. Um, 
And it, a lot of people that feel this crappy, which this person is going to, bringing them in, maybe they get a neb or they get put transiently on a couple of years of oxygen. They get a, a bag of fluid and just by being more comfortable overnight, they feel completely different the next day and they're good to go. Whereas others, they just look like garbage the next morning and we're quickly escalating from uh, scheduled nebs to two liters to four liters to six liters and all of a sudden RT is in there getting them set up for high flow. And it's really hard to differentiate who's going to do what in that very first snapshot because I've seen plenty of people that come in with O2 sets in the low 70s and look awful. And they're ready to go home at 10 o'clock waiting to get rounds come through uh, trying to get discharged because they feel fine. They just had to kind of turn that corner. It's hard to predict. Yeah. So, you know, I think the key to this initial part of the case is that Ms. Patel didn't have an oxygen requirement, but that doesn't necessarily mean we don't have things to offer her at this point. So what, what things can we offer her at this point? Um, so I think the biggest issue is trying to figure out if she is set up to get more sick and how much intensive monitoring does she need in that setting. As far as actual treating the underlying conditions here, if she has, um, she qualifies for some of the monoclonal or antibody treatments, there are some antiviral treatments that are available, um, but they're really kind of designed for an outpatient setting. So right now she, we'd kind of be letting her declare uh, for what she would need um, as far as antivirals. And really because she doesn't have end organ involvement with her lungs, immune modulation is not appropriate at this time. And we have her in the hospital at this point, just to be clear, like, cause we had talked initially, maybe Paul was saying, maybe you'd cautiously watch her at home and try to hook up some outpatient therapy, but this person has been admitted to the hospital, but does not yet have an O2 requirement. We're pretty grateful that we admit her because overnight she spikes higher temperatures. She comes, actually becomes hypoxic, 89% on room air. And the nurse overnight places her on oxygen requirement and her SATs improve. She's given kind of the supportive standard stuff, Tylenol or acetaminophen, cough medicine, nebulizer treatments. And then when you come to see her in the morning, she's just feeling a lot worse. So we were touched on a little bit about the labs and you kind of like to know where they're going, if I remember correctly. Uh, so trending, is that something that you like to do at this um, point if they're getting sicker or do you just kind of clinically look at them? So, you know, we just, this is kind of the first why in the road here she is now declared despite some reasonable supportive care that she is set up to get worse um so i don't there aren't a whole lot of labs that are going to directly inform my next steps but we have now crossed a threshold where there's therapeutics that are now entirely warranted to kind of treat her um progressing disease um there's two basic aspects of this because there's really two components of a moderate to severe COVID presentation, which is what she now has. There's the ongoing viral replication, viremic phase. That's what causes the fever, the myalgias and all of that. And that is usually kind of the front end of the presentation. A lot of patients will actually start feeling substantially better and those symptoms will get better and start resolving before they kind of have the respiratory onset. She appears to be kind of a lumper where she's getting both some of the ongoing viral syndrome along with some relatively rapidly developing uh, respiratory involvement. So given that she comfortably qualifies for kind of our standard intervention, which is going to be giving antiviral treatment to try to um, uh, arrest any progression of her disease. And that's typically done with remdesivir as an infusion in the inpatient setting. Um, 
And also, because she's having clear involvement with her lungs, which is inflammatory process, the use of corticosteroids is entirely appropriate here. Yeah, and I think the other question uh, that I have at this point with remdesivir is duration of therapy. And is there anything that might change that? It's a good question. When um, So I was one of the investigators on the ACT platform, and in that study, we set out with a 10-day um, regimen. Um, there was a report actually before that initial remdesivir observation came out that the five-day versus 10-day did not have substantial difference. And so our institution, like I believe most others, have now gone towards a five-day kind of initial course. The one time I modify that with some regularity is someone who has um, substantial underlying immune suppression. I have a relatively low threshold to tip them over into a 10-day course. That is not strictly guideline-based, but it makes sense given what their immune system is. And sometimes that'll be informed by inflammatory markers and or repeat MP swabs with cycle threshold that suggest things are getting are progressing despite our other, other interventions. And these would be people that have, uh, maybe they're on immunosuppression for a rheumatologic disease or chemotherapy, uh, transplant folks with transplants. Is that, is that the group, common groups? Yeah. It, I mean, it's a very messy heterogeneous group, but yeah, your solid organ transplants, um, you know, kidneys, livers being moderate, hearts, lungs being more severe, and then the bias towards treating longer in those that have more severe immune suppression. Um, those that are getting induction for their AML and have essentially no functional cellular immunity um, and uh, only memory um, serologic responses, they can do catastrophically bad once they kind of tip over into the inflammatory side and they have a high burden of viremia. Um, so my, my regular job is as an infectious disease consultant, and I uh, specifically work on the immunocompromised service. So it really gets complicated to start trying to sort out how best to modify the inflammatory factors and yet s- sustaining the targeted immune response and kind of combining that with an antiviral regimen as best we can. And really there's a lot of variables that kind of are tweaked each with each presentation. I think that lends itself well, actually, when you're talking about like moderating the inflammatory response um, with steroids, dexamethasone, prednisone, does it matter which one we use, how much, et cetera? Yeah. So, you know, the the ACT report on remdesivir came out with the initial reports very end of April or uh, May of 2020. And then uh, four to six weeks after that, the initial report uh, with recovery on corticosteroids came out. Their observation was that a dexamethasone dose um, had substantial uh, improvement in mortality. And that really particularly at our institution where we don't tend to be very aggressive with steroid. Our ICUs don't use a lot of steroid just kind of for managing uh, respiratory failure. And you'll see that there's a lot of heterogeneity across uh, institutions on how they do or don't use steroid. Um, we kind of started using it overnight. Um, I think there's a few key things to keep in mind with the use of steroids. Um, one is that their effect is really abrupt. I mean, I would assume just about everyone that's listening to this has had their COPD that comes in, gets their one big wallop of steroid and looks good as new the next morning. So they have a pretty abrupt impact. And that is also the case with um, COVID in, in some situations. Um, another is that whereas the mortality benefit was driven by a reduction in those that were intubated there in the subgroup analysis, um, Participants that received dexamethasone that had not yet developed an oxygen requirement actually had a uh, suggestion of harm, which makes sense. But I think a lot of the interpretation of corticosteroids and COVID has been COVID equals steroids. And that's very much not the case. 
COVID respiratory presentations should equal steroids, but using it too early or using it aggressively in immunosuppressed uh, patient where it's harder to sort out what what burden of viremia they have versus what burden of inflammation they have is a little bit more difficult to sort out. Um, the dosing of steroids is kind of an interesting thing too. The dexamethasone is not special for COVID. It is a dexamethasone equivalent. So whatever makes you happy. If you want hydrocortisone, you want prednisone, go for it. Um, it was a relatively arbitrary choice. The dosing of it is also kind of a middling dose. Like it's a it's a dose of steroids for sure. But um, we certainly have cases that um, our rheumatologists feel strongly about giving a higher dose of immune suppression. And that's starting to bear out now in some of the additional immunomodulatories that are now being stacked on with steroids, which we'll get to a, a little bit later down the road. Are you seeing people use, I, I've seen sometimes when someone, it maybe they initially come in with an oxygen requirement and they're getting remdesivir and some dexamethasone and then it, they, they bump up the, the dexamethasone to 10 milligrams twice a day. Or is that something that you're seeing done and something that you think makes sense for, for patients like that where they're, they, they're hypoxic, they're getting worse, they, they look like they're sicker, their inflammatory markers are up? So, um, I don't recommend kind of like Q24 or Q48 inflammatory markers, but when we have people that are um, either kind of plateauing or getting worse or look okay and then start getting worse, you know, when there's a change or they're not kind of doing what we would expect, um, that getting another kind of uh, snapshot of their inflammatory conditions and then considering uh, uh, augmenting their immune modulation is appropriate. Um, I generally don't recommend additional corticosteroids. The, I see that the benefit of corticosteroids is usually up front, and we now have kind of other modalities to kind of tack on, um, and also in ways that get away from kind of the cell-mediated immunity that corticosteroids tar target and getting something that's a little bit more uh, focused on the cytokine inflammatory signaling. Um, that way you're not just kind of stuck with one modality or the other, and you can kind of tweak things a little bit more controlled fashion. So. Um, specifically, um, using JAK inhibitors or baricitinib, particularly for those that maybe stall or continue to progress over the first 72 hours of hospitalization, or particularly for those that transition over in a high flow. There's no real argument now that um, adding on a JAK inhibitor is appropriate. The other consideration um, is tocilizumab or IL-6 targeting. Um, that's a little bit more difficult to sort through because there's been so many different groups and cohorts and publications on that. There have clearly been reports that have shown not much uh, improvement, while as there's others that have shown improvement. Um, and now there's some evidence that using tocilizumab with steroid may have some benefit. At our institution, we've held off using TOSI. We haven't had a population that we feel really strongly benefits from TOSI. And what our um, immune modulation has been is using steroids up front for those that either don't improve or get worse or transition to high flow is then adding on baricitinib and using that as kind of the anchor of the immune modulation. We do have occasional late presentations for people that plateau or seem to get better or sometimes even get discharged and will come in with um, what our pulmonologists are, cause, are calling like that looks like a crypto, uh, excuse me, a cryptogenic organizing pneumonia or COP and we'll use either higher dose steroids or sometimes IL-6 inhibition or sometimes even um, anakinra uh, uh, IL-1 targeting. So there's a few different ways to handle these atypical cases. But really the traditional showing up progressive oxygen requirement, adding on remdesivir to kind of control the viremic phase, and then using dexamethasone as your initial immune modulator, modulator and um, if additional uh, treatments appropriate, adding on the baricitinib. 
I wanted to try to recap a little bit and and uh, discuss the ni the, the NIH guideline. I'll go by that, and you let me know, Nathan, if you deviate. So that for hospitalized patients not yet on supplemental oxygen, they're actually recommending uh, against dexamethasone or other steroids, and they're just like remdesivir. Uh, we don't know, and mm-hmm. and then once they are requiring supplemental oxygen, then it's remdesivir or remdesivir plus dexamethasone. And if they start to tank from there, you, your institution prefers baricitinib. And you were mentioning that some of the ways you can, like clinically, if they're looking worse and their inflammatory markers are going up, like the CRP, the the um, fibrin, the ferritin, rather, um, those are patients you might think about a baricitinib and tocilizumab is not being used as much at your institution from what you said. Right. And that's my kind of comfort zone and what our institution is settled in. And just to be fair, there's other institutions that have used a lot of tocilizumab. They have a lot of experience with it and they'll use that much earlier on. Um, I think we have the luxury of a few reasonable uh, options now that um, was a little bit less the case early on. Um, The remdesivir recommendations are a little bit interesting um, because, you know, the initial report showed that those that had marked severe disease, you know, requiring admission that got remdesivir um, had improved time to recovery. So they're getting discharged earlier. And then later, um, Solidarity study came out and showed that um, patients that got remdesivir had no real improvement. And so this is one of the fun parts of COVID is how do you evaluate a study? Um, so if you look at the studies, you know, traditional internal medicine doc well, who has more numbers and what is the patient-centered outcomes? So the Solidarity study had a lot of patients. There were, I think, 2,600, I think, that got remdesivir, which is more than the entire ACT study. And the outcome is death, which most people would argue is clinically relevant. So that's that's a big study. The ACT study had just over 1,000 people, um, and the outcome was uh, time to recovery, and it was not a study that showed mortality benefit. So the NIH guidelines say to use remdesivir, whereas the WHO guidelines say we don't recommend remdesivir. So what the heck's going on there? Um, they're different studies, and I think both of them have value, but you kind of have to interpret what they're really saying or not. So the X study is your traditional, although very difficult to pull off in a pandemic gold standard study with placebo, full blinding, all the data capture, adverse events, um, and it was powered for timed recovery. It did not hit mortality at 28 days, but it it was, I mean, amazingly close. It crossed the margin by 0.03, um, and it was statistically significant for mortality at 14 days, but that wasn't the primary outcome. So we don't say it's a mortality benefit study, although it clearly was trending uh, strongly that way. The solidarity study is a more pragmatic design. So they got a lot of people on these studies. And these pragmatic designs were enormously impactful for COVID because it's hard to run traditional studies. And it's amazingly labor and uh, resource intensive to do that anyways, certainly in a pandemic. And that's where we have this early steroid observation. But the nature of the patients going on that study and the supportive care they were getting is a bit more uh, heterogeneous. And... Um, the study has some potential for bias in that it wasn't fully blinded, it wasn't placebo controlled. So I think that's where the differences start showing up. And it also appears that the timing and people getting on remdesivir was a bit earlier in ACT than it probably was for the solidarity study. And then I think this has been validated a bit by the pine tree work, which frankly isn't wouldn't wouldn't have been what I would have considered a priority study. Um, 
but it ended up being pretty informative when we got into Omicron and didn't have many antibodies available, is that if you use remdesivir early on before the onset of respiratory disease, um, that it functions pretty similar to other antivirals or um, antibodies that we know have efficacy. And I think one of the other takeaways is that remdesivir had already been tested in humans, had some in vitro activity against SARS-CoV-2, so it made sense to test. But the idea of testing an antiviral in someone who already has respiratory involvement was not a slam dunk. So it makes some sense that there's a little bit of ambivalence in that data of trying to sort out. But I think the experience and the overall data suggested that remdesivir, particularly for those that are transitioning into the respiratory involvement of COVID, is um, uh, quite beneficial. And it's uh, been um, broadly recommended and, and used in the um, United States. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. And listeners, I know we all have a lot of stress. We're clinicians. We have a lot of responsibility. We have families. We have stressful jobs. And maybe we have COVID right now. Uh, not that I'm speaking from personal experience. But some of these things, they cause us to lose sleep and sometimes we just don't take care of ourselves the way we should. As I've said before, I think taking care of your own mental health is very important. And I've been using BetterHelp long before they were even a sponsor on the show. It's so great because it takes away a lot of the normal barriers to getting into mental health care. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, so give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. Curbsiders listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com curb. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash curb. Can I swing back to the the lab markers? I, I think the CRP cutoff, there, there have been some cutoffs. Do you have in your head from your experience seeing patients, what what values for the the ones that you look at? Can you name the labs you look at and what sort of values sort of get your your uh, antennas up? It's a really good question that I wish I could give you a little bit more straight answer on um, because we don't have an inflammatory marker that really represents COVID inflammation. So you end up kind of getting a gestalt of where things are and aren't. And really one cross-sectional value doesn't mean much to me overall. Where they really become beneficial is when we have someone who isn't doing what they should be doing and we see a trajectory that suggests that they're continuing to have a kind of one of these logarithmic increases in ferritin. And we go from four to 600, which it's elevated, but it's not so much to maybe a thousand to now 3000. Well, clearly we are not containing the immune system and we need to be more aggressive. Um, CRP can be all over the place, especially when you have particularly sick patients that end up going into the ICU and they have all these other things going on. So using an arbitrary CRP value is really going to not get you very far. But when I start seeing 100 to 200 into the 250s and they have a ferritin that started off at 800 and is now 1900 and they look awful, like there's not a whole lot of mystery that their immune system is going crazy and we are losing ground and that's why they're manifesting with their progressive hypoxia and we need to do something more. Um, we have more opportunity to do that now with using baricitinib early on. Um, and I will occasionally reach out to my rheumatology colleagues. If I have someone who's really starting to kind of transition to something that's reminiscent of a cytokine storm or macrophage activation syndrome to figure out what they're, they're comfortable with given the overall picture, if, if we should add something more on. So Nathan, I think, 
there's two things that really I get stuck on when I'm dealing with a patient that's crumping with COVID, which is they're all tachycardic and hypoxic. So if slash when do I order a CTPE, you know, because I think a lot of us make the assumption that it is COVID, but, you know, we have definitely seen an increase in people with clots and that sort of stuff. Again, there's not a yes, no answer. If you have a patient that's heading for the ICU, someone's going to scan them at least once, and that might as well be you as they're kind of taking that turn. Um, but if it's not you, it's going to be the MET team or when the pulmonary team comes and evaluates them. And I think that's hard to argue against. If you have someone who looks about the same or seems to be looking better and then abruptly starts looking more hypoxic but doesn't report feeling overtly different, that's a good indication. Um, D-dimer, again, is one of those inflammatory markers that we'll get on our kind of broad panel. And if we see someone who's, I mean, it's very typical for them to be elevated. And it's also extremely typical for them to drift up. But occasionally we'll have them be elevated. And then eh, they're a little bit more elevated. And then holy cow elevated. Um, especially if they're not doing well, that's another indication that I would go ahead and go ahead and check that scan at that point. I think that ties in fairly well with something that I think both Matt and I were wondering sort of the anticoagulation question, you know, in terms of when they're on the floor and then there seems to be a change with the ICU, but we'll start with when they're on the floor and they have an oxygen requirement dosing wise, you know, there's some discussion about prophylactic versus therapeutic and that sort of thing. So can you maybe go into that a little bit? I certainly don't mind trying, full disclosure. If you're calling me as your friendly infectious disease consultant for anticoagulation, we're already on the wrong foot. That said, um, some of the warp speed active studies have looked at this, um, and there was a lot of consideration for this early on. Who all should, should everyone be taking aspirin in the setting of the pandemic? Should everyone be getting uh, prophylaxis? Should everyone be getting therapeutic? Um, the data that we have thus far suggests that therapeutic anticoagulation, meaning full-dose Lovenox, for those that have hypoxia but are not yet requiring ICU care is indicated. Um, those that make it over to the ICU, the benefit is either too late um, so that you don't ward off enough development of worse disease, or there's too much risk for complications such that it's in either case using therapeutic uh, anticoagulation um, just empirically in the ICU is not appropriate. I would add one other, and this is as your friendly infectious disease consultant, is um, use of empiric antibacterials in, in this situation too. Um, the number of times I've been told that someone has COVID and pneumonia um, is really high. And that causes me a fair amount of angst. Um, there's actually pretty good data showing that the rate of secondary bacterial infections or concomitant bacterial infections is exceedingly low. Um, and so the observation of ground glass infiltrates in the setting of someone who has COVID should not make you reach out for the bank and the Zosin or whichever broad, broad, broad regimen you and your institution prefer. Um, if you have someone who is kind of transition out of that kind of viremic phase, they haven't been as achy, their fever seems to resolve, and now they look crappy and they spike a new fever, by all means, culture them. And as your friendly consultant, I'm never going to give you a hard time for empirically starting antibiotics. It's when you just let them keep going indefinitely that tends to drive me a little crazy. Um, but treating COVID with antibacterials as a kind of routine a manner, of course, is um, a good way to give me heartburn. So there is not a hand-wavy, anti-inflammatory, um, pleiotropic effect of azithromycin on COVID? Oh, 
<laughs> Fighting words trying to trigger me. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and Paul, I know I know you're a huge fan of procalcitonin, and so I know that's thrown around in this bacterial pneumonia discussion. But I, yeah. I like the the clinical. Do they have double worsening or double sickening, like we look for with acute bacterial sinusitis? And we're just like, ah. Maybe they had a virus. Now it seems like they have a bacterial infection. Um, that that makes some sense to me because I'm used to it. But I, I, so you're saying basically in the in the acute, the person that's presenting acutely with respiratory symptoms that has just had this one presentation of COVID, on very unlikely that they're having a bacterial pneumonia in addition to their COVID pneumonia. It's it, it's definitively unlikely. We have data for that. And from my perspective, as someone who sees people that progress and the complications of managing some of these patients in longer ICU stays, if you're going to smoke their microbiome early on and then instrument them and then deal with the complications of that long term, it's a nightmare. And so it's really beneficial for the ecosystem, for the individual patient to be thoughtful before throwing broad spectrum antibacterials. Love that. I, I wanted to just briefly, before we move on to the next part, our our resident epidemiologist, Dr. Rahul Ganatra, I, I had asked about the anticoagulation study. Uh, there's been, there was one in the New England Journal, and he's he's preparing a Twitter thread on this. And he was just saying he thinks we're unlikely to have a more definitive study answering this question and that he's seen some variability um, based on who's who's doing this for for the patients, it, it, uh, some of it depends on bleeding risk, of course, whether or not. Because for me, as a as a hospitalist, that's not working in the ICU. The vast majority of the patients I'm seeing with COVID on the inpatient side are hypoxic. So you know that's a lot of people that'll be putting on full anticoagulation, and uh, it just feels, um, yeah, it just it feels like a lot. But uh, that's what the guidelines are saying, and there's evidence. Um, there's evidence for it. So it's, it's just an interesting, it's, it's just interesting how then if you transfer to the ICU, you would step down the anticoagulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's again, you're just balancing risk benefit. You're, and, and that's what you're stuck kind of doing. So there's a sweet spot where the benefit of, of anticoagulation outweighs your risk. And then that transitions either where yeah. you're not getting much benefit and, or your risk is going up. Um, the one opportunity where that would meaningfully change is that we get a better understanding of the mechanistic triggers for thrombosis, which is still a bit of a conundrum. Uh, again, I don't want to overspeak my ex- expertise here, but there's likely um, consistent pathways of inflammation that are leading to thrombotic events. If we get a better handle on that, we could be more targeted with these therapies. Let's go through the rest of Ms. Patel's course. So she did decompensate. Uh, initially went to the ICU, required high-flow nasal cannula. She was put on remdesivir and dexamethasone, and pretty much it. Uh, She came out of the ICU. She was weaned off of oxygen down to three liters. But as has been the case with a lot of my patients, I just can't get her over the hump, and she's stuck at three liters, and there's nothing I can do about it. So the question I've actually been wondering myself and has been that – I, distri- I feel pretty confident in taking care of these people, getting them home. I really don't know what happens to them when they leave. You know, do they come off of oxygen? Are they on it forever? Yeah. So I am part of some of the NIH efforts for long COVID. So we're seeing some of the various patterns here. Um, it's 
interesting to think about in long COVID, which is not necessarily what you're talking about. So there's kind of the post-acute phase of what does the recovery look like and what does the weaning look like? And then there's this plateau. And then there's the long COVID, which is relatively just based upon the duration of the symptoms. Um, It's a very heterogeneous group. You have those that have truly just kind of the after effects of profound uh, inflammation and end organ damage. Um, Very early on, there were papers reporting fibrotic changes within the lung that are reminiscent of pulmonary fibrosis. Um, And that's just a function of the massive recruitment of neutrophils, um, some of the uh, modulatory change, the cytokines and factors they're expressing in the lungs. And in some folks, it's just a bit of a wasteland. I've taken care of patients that have been on ECMO for literally months. Um, They just don't have viable lung left. Um, There's others that have kind of a persistent reactive uh, phase where they're kind of acting like your COPD or or that had a a pretty aggressive viral infection and they're just tightening up over and over again. And it can be a challenge to to manage. Oftentimes they'll respond to steroids. Um, But you all know that, you know, long on again, off again, on again, off again course of steroids carries their own burden. And then there's some that seem to have a more difficult to define, um, but kind of interesting post-COVID inflammatory phase where whether it's residual viral antigen or some autoimmune process or just some smattering of inflammation that didn't get properly turned back down again after the infection resolved that um, continues in the lung that can lead to ongoing dyspnea or exacerbations. Um, I've definitely taken care of people that have had persistent oxygen requirement. The, some of the most frustrating cases we've had are people that plateaued and felt well, except they were stuck on high flow or six liters. And it's just, what do you do? Like, it's such a frustrating issue. I, I had one that ultimately decided she went to palliative and that's, that was her choice. And we've had others that we try to get to rehab with higher amounts of auction. It's, it's extremely challenging and frustrating. Um, I don't have a therapy to kind of rebuild alveoli and, and uh, air surface interface to kind of fix them. Um, but that said, many slowly, steadily get better and their functional status improves. Um, and there are some tales that kind of start overlapping into the long COVID. I guess the question that I have more specifically is have I don't think I saw any studies that address this yet. Is that a fair statement? Um, despite my best efforts, I don't want to um, overstate that I've read all of the COVID papers, which if you kind of look, it's amazing what has happened in the last couple of years. <laughs> but no, I haven't seen a good population-based study of kind of like the optimal management weaning trajectory of some of these people that have um, persistent dyspnea. Again, we're getting at that somewhat through long COVID, but it's kind of a related but distinct question than these kind of immediately post-acute phase that you're looking at. And a, a lot of the, fortunately, a lot of the patients we're seeing, and I, I'd be interested to hear what Paul's experience has been, but a lot of the patients in primary care on the primary care side will, uh, will come off oxygen. I don't, I don't think I have any, I, I don't have a, the, the biggest patient panel in the world, but I, I don't think I have anybody that's had trouble coming off oxygen. And I do have a bunch of patients that were pretty sick, high flow, uh, on high flow and in, in, in the ICU um, with COVID. Paul, I'm not sure your experience. Has, have you seen people weeks or months later still on oxygen? Yeah, it's uh, what I've seen uh, are patients that have underlying structural lung disease have COVID that then knock them down. I, well, that's probably a bad way to phrase it, but mm-hmm. significantly worsen their function and they've now fully recovered back to what their, their prior baseline was. So I'll have patients that were not previously on oxygen who just got 
sick and then sort of stayed kind of sickish and, and, and are sort of at a new level uh, requiring supplemental oxygen. So that's a scenario I've seen actually relatively commonly, but patients who don't have a whole lot of underlying structural lung disease seem to do better in my, in my anecdotal experience. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. On some of the trials we've been in, the um, last data point 60 days, and so we'll have 60-day visits, and it's not uncommon to see them kind of wheeling around the oxygen, and they'll tell me they're not using it baseline when they're at rest, um, but they're still trying to get up to functional status where they don't need that when they're uh, doing any sort of activity or um, overnight when they'll wake up gasping, and it, it's a frustrating problem. I had a follow-up just to actually to the two primary care guys, do you guys send these people to Palm for follow-up or do you kind of monitor their oxygen requirement in clinic? I was kind of curious. I haven't had to deal with it. So Paul, I I think probably these people, if they have an underlying disease, they're probably already following with Palm. Yeah, it's they're they're often uh, scheduled for follow up. I you know I, for for a number of reasons, but then also if someone has persistent pulmonary symptoms, specifically, I will have them follow with palm, especially if they have um, some chronic changes on CT scan, which I've which I've seen a couple of times also. Yeah, and in the long like we we did a show on long COVID. I think a lot of the symptoms I'm seeing, I guess fortunately or not fortunately, um, there it's not necessarily people that are still having oxygen requirements. I'm more seeing people with like the brain fog, the fatigue. Uh, they just they just don't quite feel right, and it's been weeks or months later. I've seen a lot more of that, um, more so than patients that are whose lungs are destroyed from COVID. But I'm sure those patients are out there. Uh, our um, biggest long COVID referral by a pretty comfortable margin is to pulmonary. We do a lot of PFTs just to try to assess where they are. We don't have a lot of um, certainly no specific interventions, although there are patterns that look more fibrotic and will kind of repackage some of the IPF interventions. There's those that look a bit more inflammatory and they'll get a little bit more nuanced as mm-hmm. far as versus steroids versus inhaled versus ways of kind of modifying that a bit. Um, but it remains a, an area that we're still lacking on great interventions. And I, I wanted to, you know, I, I think this question about the booster vaccine or the next vaccine dose after hospitalization is great for the audience. Look, we're we're a bunch of general internists and an infectious diseases doctor. So proning and not high flow and that stuff, that that's a whole separate podcast, uh, oxygenating these folks. Um, but I, I think the, the booster question comes up a lot or someone's in the middle of a series. Can you talk to, how, how do you talk to patients if they either haven't been fully vaccinated or they've been fully vaccinated, but now they're up for a booster after they're recovering from COVID? How do you talk to them about the timing? Um, my bias has been that I'm getting repeated access to those that haven't been vaccinated at all. Um, and my strategy is to very bluntly kind of address where we are, how we got here and what we can and can't do about it. Um, even my clinic patients that my clinic is an HIV clinic. And for many of them, their lives were literally saved by the kind of medical industrial complex that developed antivirals. And the vast majority of my patients were reticent to get vaccinated until they talked to me specifically, like the Tony Fauci guy who's been at the NIH, that wasn't a good endorsement, but hanging out with me, that's, that's what I needed to hear. Um, and that's kind of, I mean, it's, I guess it's somewhat gratifying, but terrifying to me that like my relatively engaged, medically informed, um, patient population is still having some, some hesitation. Um, my strategy as with everything is to be very blunt, not harsh or mean, but just like, this is what it is. This is what we would have reasonably expected had we had a vaccination in place. The booster remains a moving target, not unlike where we are with antibodies right now. Um, when we're recording this, we just got advice on getting a 
second booster or the fourth shot for the mRNA in those that are at risk, um, particularly in light of what is likely to be a new surge with a Omicron variant, although the overall experience seems to be there's a lot less acute severe disease, but a lot of kind of transmission that that booster seems to be recommended. There's also some data that if you give vaccine early on, that it may actually have kind of almost a uh, therapeutic benefit, but that's uh, pre-publication data. So I'm going to be looking very closely to oh, see wow. if we can integrate that into kind of our treatment. Remember, going back to antibody, really the make or break, does antibody help with outcomes in the inpatient setting is do they have a serologic response? Yes, no. Most people, by the time they get in the hospital, do either through vaccination, prior infection, or their current infection, and they've now seroconverted. But there's a subpopulation that don't, and those people have a benefit from antibody. So if you can give a you know an antigen on a platter to a very noisy inflammatory immune system, and it sees that spike protein, and you can help trigger a seroconversion, it makes sense that it would have some benefit. And not unlike trying to deal with someone's tobacco use when they're having a myocardial event that's a good time to give a vaccine if, if we can show that it's safe and has some benefit. Um, but I mean, I've had some harsh or some difficult conversations when people were on life support and their family was there and trying to talk about, this is why we vaccinate. And this is what it looks like. And, um, ultimately I try to draw most patients or, um, family members have one concern. They heard about this on Facebook. They read about this. I don't want to get myocarditis. I heard it's magnetic. I don't want to interrupt with my other medications and I can usually answer that one and then they feel better. And then they'll ask me once more, one other question just to see if I know what I'm talking about. And then they're like, okay. And then that's usually what it takes, but they need to kind of give the opportunity to kind of get that thing that's chirping in the back of their mind off their chest. And then usually we're able to make progress. Someone like Miss Patel, who was on three liters in the hospital, when she's finally discharged, let's say we're going to discharge her on oxygen. Would you tell her, get your, her booster doses due. Would you tell her to get that, that dose when she, uh, once she feels totally better and is off oxygen or can she get it uh, before she leaves the hospital? With the data we have right now, I wouldn't tell her to get it immediately because she's already started and she just got a big angin pulse. Um, usually when we give a vaccine, we give it and then we try to wait 20 to 30 days so we can kind of challenge the immune system again. So you can kind of have your mounting immune response and you, you can let that immune response calm down and they can give it another pulse. Um, we started off with the recommendation of not getting it for 90 days, if you remember, after infection. That was really a, a amount of time that was picked more because of limited supply than it was because there was something magical about 90 days. So for Ms. Patel, I would tell her, um, you need a boost, even though you've been infected, which provides some boost, I would still want you to get um, your, your mRNA boost. And I would tell you get in about next month. So wait about a month and then go ahead and get um, a repeat challenge that way. Um, if the data changes, which it wouldn't shock me if it did, that could change, but that's where it is right now. Mm -hmm. Nathan, now's the time. If you had a couple take-home points that you really want the audience to remember about this, uh, what would those be? Especially for the internist who doesn't do COVID all day, every day, is remembering it's kind of two processes that may overlap, and you don't want to crank up the immune modulation before you kind of have a handle on the uh, viremia phase. So be thoughtful about your steroids when you're using them, particularly in an immune-suppressed population. Um, Right now, remdesivir is our primary arm against um, you know the virus directly on the inpatient setting. I expect there to be kind of evolving data on how best to use antibodies, particularly on the pre-hospital side of things, um, but that may evolve somewhat on the inpatient uh, side as well. 
And then I guess the last bit is that remember that the immunosuppressed population has the right to do anything that they darn well please. They can have a very protracted viremic phase where they can have lingering symptoms for two to four to six weeks, and then they pop with late respiratory symptoms. I've seen people that have rebound viremia where we swab them again and they have a massive second wave two to six weeks later. Um, we also have people that resolve the viremia, never had much symptoms, and they come in and they have massive inflammation. They have the, one of these organized pneumonias, and you have to take a significantly immunosuppressed patient and wallop them with additional immune suppression to get things to calm down. Um, just be very thoughtful. They don't play by the rules. That's the only rule they have. Okay. Any resources uh, or things that you'd like to plug or like send the audience to a certain website or tools you'd like to make them aware of? Um, I think the NIH guidelines do a good job of not only saying what to do, but in a as concise manner as you could possibly hope for, like what that data is. It alludes to some of what we talked about of comparing these studies and why one is leading to one observation and one recommendation here, whereas another is getting a softer recommendation. I mean, COVID has been tough just because it's been an onslaught both, you know, in the real world and in the data world, but it really challenges you to understand how to how to weigh different studies that have related but distinct populations against each other. Um, and really understanding where the studies were generated should be able to better inform how you can leverage that data and those interventions for your patients the best way. Thank you so much. So we will fade this to the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> you're ready for it. That's exciting. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify now. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder, you can get CME credit for this episode for free through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And I wanted to give a special thanks to our writers and producers for this episode. Moni, Got Money, Amin, and Meredith uh, will work on the nickname Truebit. And <laughs> to our whole team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli is transitioning her executive producer role over to the team at Podpace, who have provided production and editing support for this episode. Elizabeth Proto is now running our social media. Tima Karganov, still helping out on the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Dr. Moni Got Money Amin. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>